are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Good morning. The scripture reading today comes from Ruth, um, starting at chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and someone will get one to you. And if you don't own a Bible, then you can keep that one as Sojourn's gift to you. Um, Please stand for the reading of God's word. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Well, good morning to you. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and I'm just grateful to gather with you on this Sunday. Uh, happy Mother's Day to the moms out there. Uh, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to take some time at the end of our service to pray for you and pray for other ladies in our church as well, so excited to do that, uh, but grateful that we get to jump into God's Word now in the book of Ruth, and so as we get ready to do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come before you this morning and just ask, uh, ask of you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd give us grace today. God, we know that you're a God full of grace and full of mercy, and so we ask you that you would pour it out on us. You already have and continually do that, but we just want to plead with you to do that this morning. That as we open up your word and jump back into this story in the book of Ruth, God, I pray that you would help us just to know your power, to know and experience your presence. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, that you'd make us attentive this morning to receive what you have to say to us through your living and active word this morning. God, we need you. We're desperate for you. And some of us are recognizing that in a very acute way in our lives right now others of us maybe are ignoring that reality but God it's always the case we are creatures you are the creator and so we come before you humbly this morning submitting ourselves to your word to your lordship and I pray that as we sit under your word this morning that you'd bring encouragement that you'd bring conviction that you'd help us just to know you more and be drawn closer and closer to you. And we thank you that it's through Christ that that that's even possible. And so we pray all this in his name this morning. Amen. So I uh, basically have grown up in Northern Virginia. My family moved to the area when I was about four years old, and so I've lived here most of my life, a few little times here and there that we didn't live here. But you know, that's the interesting thing about Fairfax, the interesting thing about Northern Virginia is most people aren't from here. Uh, most people at some point in time moved here for work, moved here because of school or, or something like that, a job or family relocation. In fact, how many people were actually born in Fairfax County? All right, there's a few of you, but the vast majority of, yeah, you can be proud about that. Uh, there's the vast majority of us in this room this morning are, are not originally from here. 
Well, my family currently lives in the city of Fairfax. Uh, we've been there for about five years now. And the city of Fairfax is actually pretty geographically small. It's only about six square miles. There's 25,000 residents that live in the city of Fairfax. Now, the city of Fairfax is right smack in the middle of the county of Fairfax, which has about 1.2 million people in it. And again, most of those people not originally from this area. But an interesting little fact, the city of Fairfax used to be called the town of Fairfax, but Fairfax wasn't always its name. Originally, it was called the town of Providence, town of Providence. In fact, one of the two uh, city elementary schools is called Providence Elementary School. It's where my son Owen goes. That's where that school got its name from. Now, a lot of times when we tell people that Owen goes to Providence Elementary School, they think, oh, he goes to a Christian school then, because oftentimes we associate the word Providence with the Christian faith, but it's just a part of the public school system. But the town of Providence, which is now the city of Fairfax, probably got its name because of that, because of the providence of God. It's the same thing with Providence, Rhode Island. But do we really know what the word providence means? Maybe we throw that word around, we hear it, but do we actually know what it means? According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it means divine guidance or care. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a little bit of a longer answer. It says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Or to put it a little more simply, God's providence is the fact that God is continually involved in the life of all created things. Now, what this doesn't mean is that you don't have real choices. Our actions matter. They have real effect and real consequences in how we live our life. But what it does mean is that your life isn't driven by random occurrences. What it also doesn't mean is that your life is driven by fate or determinism. See, providence is personal. Providence is personal because it's rooted in the character and nature of God. He is high and lifted up. He is a transcendent God above us in every way, shape, and form. Yet, he created the world but didn't walk away from it. Now, our God is imminent as well. He's intimately involved in the details of this world and the details of our life, even if you don't always know what he might be up to. The story of Ruth, which we started last week, looking at this story in the Old Testament, a short little book in between Judges and 1 Samuel, we see a story of providence. This book is soaking in it. In our text today, we see that clearly on display. And so my hope for us this morning as we jump into Ruth chapter 2, as we walk through this text this morning and kind of see this next scene unfold in this story of redemption, my hope is, is that the Holy Spirit will help you to not only trust God with the details of your life, but also to see that his providence is the path to experience his loving kindness. That God's providence in your life is the path to experience his loving kindness. And so no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey this morning, if you are walking closely with Jesus and you've known him for a really, really long time, or maybe you're here this morning and a friend brought you, or you're just kind of checking out who Jesus is and what this whole church thing is about, no matter where you find yourself kind of on that spectrum of your spiritual journey, my hope is, is that we dive into the story of Ruth, that God will use it to draw you more and more 
to himself. And so with that, let's open up to Ruth chapter 2, and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Last week, we looked at Ruth chapter 1, the beginning of this story, and it's a story that begins with disobedience and tragedy, but we saw last week that it's through tragedy that transformation takes place. It's through tragedy, through death even, that life comes about. Ruth, who had no idea who the one true living God is, through tragedy and loss comes to know and follow the true living God. The God that Naomi and her family had turned their back on, but now Naomi was turning back too. When Ellen read this morning, we started at the end of chapter 1 and verse 22 as this kind of hint of hope is given to us. That Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, a city that means the house of bread, in the midst of coming back from famine and loss, they come back to this city, the house of bread, and it says that it's the beginning of barley harvest. There's a hopefulness about what's to come. So Ruth comes to know the true and living God, and they arrive back together, her and Naomi, in the midst of brokenness in Bethlehem. And as we get into chapter 2 this morning, we see that this is broken down into three movements, three sections of this story. The first movement, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is seeking survival. Seeking survival. And we see this in verses 1 through 3 that were read this morning. Now, if you look at verse 1, we see here that the author is giving some narration. He's speaking to us as the audience. He's telling us something that's going on here. What he's telling us in verse 1 is saying, look, keep your eye out for a new character. Look for somebody new that's going to come into the story because he's going to play an important role. Then in verse 2, he dives back into the story and gets back to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi, they come back to Bethlehem and they have nothing, absolutely nothing. Except the clothes on their back, they roll back into town. And so Ruth offers to go and glean in the fields. The the idea of gleaning is that, that People would go out into the fields where there were farmers harvesting barley, in this case, eventually wheat, and they would pick up the, the scraps, the things that the reapers maybe dropped or left behind so that they could have food to eat. And so Ruth says that she wants to go. She offers and asks to go out into the fields to glean so that she and Naomi can have food to eat. Now, we aren't actually sure really why Naomi doesn't go with her. It's likely that Naomi is in her 50s. And so she's an able-bodied woman. She could go out and work alongside of Ruth in the midst of the fields, but she doesn't go. Now, if we really stop to think about it, it probably makes sense, right? I mean, it's likely that, Ruth, I mean, that Naomi is still struggling. She's still in the midst of grief, struggling with depression, maybe having a difficulty just getting out of bed in the morning. So Ruth offers to go. And Ruth offers to go once again to love her mother-in-law sacrificially. She offers to go, showing once again her loyalty towards Naomi, a reflection of a heart that's been changed by God. Now, seeking food is a common reality for us as human beings, and it always has been. God created us to be people who need food in order to survive. But for most of us, I would guess that when it comes to food, it isn't difficult. That's not the case for everybody, but for most of us, that's the case. I would guess that most of us have food in our homes right now, something that we could eat. Many of us are going to go out to eat after we gather here this morning, and you get to choose where you're going to go to partake of food. And a lot of us take it for granted of what we have all around us. But for some people in the world, finding food is difficult. 
People even in Fairfax County finding food can be difficult. For Ruth and Naomi, it was especially difficult. They didn't know where their food was going to come from. They didn't know what it was going to look like. Ruth isn't just seeking food. She's seeking survival for herself and her mother-in-law. But God has provided a way for his people. Gleaning is actually a part of the law of God. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, God says this, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Don't pick up the stuff that falls is left behind. He says, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so when Ruth says in verse 2 that she might go glean after him and find favor, she's hoping to find someone who's seeking to walk in obedience to the law of God. She's hoping to find someone who will show her mercy and be kind to her. And so Naomi says go, and Ruth goes. But let's not think that Ruth is kind of stoic and without emotion in the midst of this. This would have produced some level of anxiousness within her, or at least adrenaline. Right? I mean, she's in a strange place. She's not from Bethlehem. She's probably never been there before. She doesn't know the lay of the land. She doesn't know any of the fields or any of the farmers or any of the people. And so you can imagine a woman going out by herself in the midst of a world that's dominated by reapers who are most likely all men to go out and say, I need to find some food for my family. There'd be a lot going on stirring within her. But God is at work. Notice what the text says. Let's read verse 3 again. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come to the field of Boaz. Here's our new character. Right? The, the author said, hey, Boaz, remember him. He's going to pop up here in a minute. The one who's a relative of Elimelech. Now, if you're watching a movie, this is the part of the movie where you as the audience are watching this and you're seeing all this stuff unfold before you. You're like, oh my goodness, there's Boaz, there's Ruth. What's going to happen? You know something that the characters in the story don't actually know yet. But this isn't serendipity. This isn't coincidence. This is God's providence in Ruth's life. See, she doesn't go to the field because of Boaz. She doesn't even know who Boaz is. She goes to the field because she's trying to survive. She goes to the field because she's looking for food. She's taking responsibility in her life. But all along, what we see is that God is working behind the scenes. God is at work in the midst of her life, and he's going to provide for her because he loves her. and He cares of her for her. It's Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, the original audience would have heard she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz and been like, yeah, right. She happened to. It's almost like the author's like, she happened to. Like, wink, wink. Like, this isn't a coincidence. God's at work in the midst of the details of her life. So what happens next? Well, this brings us to our next section which we see in verses 4 through 16, showing love, showing love. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean, gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The author says, behold, Boaz. What he's saying is there's no bold in this, right? Like they had to use other words to draw our attention. He's saying, look, look, Boaz. He's here and he happened to come to the field at the exact same time that Ruth's there. He's seeking to grab our attention. When he says, behold, Boaz, look, Boaz, it's as if he's saying to us, look what's happening. Look to what God's doing. Something exciting is going on. And so Boaz greets his workers, but then he notices something. He notices someone new, someone different. And he asks this question, whose young woman is this? It's a weird way to ask a question, right? Not who is that, but whose is that? It's not because he had a poor view of women. He just assumed she was working for someone. She must be a servant of somebody out here. So who does she go with? And so the foreman tells him who she is and why she's there. She's that Moabite woman, the one who came back with Naomi. She asked to glean, and she's been hard at work all day. Now, why does he know so much detail about her life? Remember chapter 1, verse 19? They roll back into town, and the whole town is stirred. Small town stuff, right? News travels fast. People knew who Ruth was. They had already been talking about her. And also, Ruth isn't from there. She's an outsider. She stands out as being different. In fact, people from Moab often were not looked at as friends, but enemies. The beginning of Moab was not a good one. It came out of uh, disobedience among Lot's daughters. In fact, the king of Moab sought to, to pronounce a curse over God's people. And so there's not a great relationship with the people of Moab when it comes to the people of God. But I'm sure the foreman probably knew her name. I mean, they came back to town. People know what's going on. He probably knew her name, but he refers to her by her ethnicity. The Moabite woman. He, he doesn't really see her. He essentially dehumanizes her in that moment. She's a foreigner. He makes her no more than the sum of her ethnic background. And don't we do that sometimes? We look at people and all we see is their outward appearance, maybe the color of their skin or their status in life. We quickly look, assess, and pass by. Do we sometimes look at people the same way, dehumanizing them in our minds and hearts and lives? But what does Boaz do? He doesn't just see some Moabite, he sees a person, a fellow image bearer of God. And look at what he does, look at what he says, verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, there's her name again, he says to Ruth, now listen my daughter, do not glean, go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. In that moment, Ruth is seen. In that moment, Ruth is loved. She's humanized once again. Do you ever feel unseen in your life? Have moments where you feel like nobody really knows anything about me. No one really pays any attention to me. I want you to know something this morning that we can see even from this story in the character of God is that God sees you. He sees you no matter how, how inconsequential you might feel in the midst of your life right now. He sees you and he cares for you. And I hope that we as a church, following after the way and the heart of our Father, would not just look at people, but genuinely see them. See them as fellow image bearers of God. And so Boaz, he could have kicked Ruth out of his field. He said, I don't, I don't really want you here. 
but he didn't. He showed her great kindness, exceeding generosity. He not only allows her to stay in the field and glean that we see in verses 8 and 9, which is already just a great act of mercy. Boaz is a, a man after God's own heart. He's, he's seeking to walk in obedience and follow the law and care for this person who's in his field. He not only allows her to do that, but he also gives even more. In verses 14 through 16, I'll just summarize those, those for us real quick. What Boaz does then is he, he invites Ruth to a meal. He says, come and eat amongst my workers. That wasn't required of him. He says, come and eat and take as much as you want. In fact, Ruth goes home with a doggy bag. She has leftovers. And then he gives her even more food, and he tells the reapers, leave some of the bundles of grain out so that she can take those home with us. That's an act of great grace, giving her more than she deserves. See, Ruth is not just some Moabite. She's a new creation. She's a beloved daughter of God who's been lavished with loving kindness from God. See, the author is showing us something here. He's reminding us of something significant in this part of the story and really throughout the whole story. It's that God is a God of loving kindness. God is a God of loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. That's the word for loving kindness. It's translated a lot of different ways in our English Bibles. In the ESV, the one we preach from most often, it's often translated steadfast love. Sometimes it comes up as kindness or loving kindness or loyalty or mercy. But chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love is not an abstract feeling of goodwill. Like, I, I hope you are okay. No, this kind of loving kindness is about practical action on behalf of another. And it's something that you and I, as God's people, are also called to do to one another. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a verse that's been used a whole lot recently when it comes to doing justice and mercy in our culture, says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That phrase, love kindness, what he's saying is do chesed. Do it. Go out and show loving kindness. Go show steadfast love to those around you. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing to Ruth. He sees someone in need of loving kindness and he gives it to her in abundance. He doesn't withhold anything from her. But that isn't because Boaz like musters that up on his own. It isn't because he's just a good person. No, it's the overflow of his life. He has a heart for God and so he's overflowing with this as he seeks to honor God in the midst of his life. Because at the end of the day, the reality is, if loving kindness is present, if steadfast love is present in his life or our life, it's because it begins with God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word chesed is used about 250 times, and almost always it's used in reference to God. Almost always used in reference to him. He is the source of loving kindness. He is full of loving kindness. Listen to some of these texts. Every time you hear the phrase steadfast love, that's the author, the writer of Scripture, telling you about God's loving kindness, about his hesed towards you. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. This is how God reveals himself to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And then there's Psalm 136, that it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever 26 times in 26 verses. This is who our God is. This is who our God is, a God of steadfast love, of loving kindness, of mercy, a God of chesed. What we see here in this amazing story is that Boaz is modeling that for us. He's showing us what that looks like. God is showing us and pouring that out in Ruth's life through Boaz, and he often does that, working through his people to display his love. But Boaz isn't the only one in this story who's modeling loving kindness. See, Boaz shows great mercy to Ruth. He shows great grace to her, but Ruth doesn't understand why. Look at verse 10. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Isn't it interesting she calls herself a foreigner? Maybe that's because everybody keeps calling her a Moabite. She's kind of forgotten her, her new identity. She's not a foreigner anymore. She's a child of God. If we go back to chapter 1, she made confession that this is my God. This is who she is now. But in the midst of this, maybe because of this confusion, and she's trying to figure out what it looks like to be in relationship with God and his people, she says, well, I'm just a foreigner are you sometimes confused or forget your own identity? Forget who you are in Christ? Because listen, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Just like Ruth, you're no longer a slave to sin, but to righteousness. You're no longer an orphan, but a beloved child of God. So Boaz tells Ruth why he's impressed with her. She says, why do you find favor with me? Why are you showing me such kindness? You don't even know me. He tells her, verse 11 and 12, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Then he pronounces his blessing over her. The Lord repay, repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. What impresses Boaz isn't Ruth's appearance. We don't know what Ruth really looks like. Oftentimes we hear this story and we think, oh, it's such a romantic love story. We'll get to that part next week. But this isn't about Ruth's appearance. That's not what is drawing Boaz to Ruth. And that's, that's good for us. We live in a hyper-focused appearance culture, right? We're very much focused on our outward appearances. But what, Ruth, what Boaz notices about Ruth isn't her appearance, but her character, he says, Ruth, I, I'm showing you great love because you've shown great love, great loyalty to Naomi. I've heard all about it. And it's not because Naomi deserved it, but because Ruth's heart had been changed by God. Ruth shows steadfast love to Naomi because Ruth has been shown steadfast love from God. And so Boaz acknowledges that. He says, Ruth, I, I know that you have and continue to take refuge not in your outward circumstances but you take refuge under the wings of our God. He is your refuge. See, when we look at Ruth's story, 
we can see that it was a kind and loving providence. A kind and loving providence through a painful path of loss that led Ruth to her Savior. But her hope is still in God. So in verse 13, we see Ruth responds with humble thankfulness. And she continues to work throughout the day. And at the end of the day, she goes home with, verse 17, with an ephah of barley. Now, I'm guessing that most of you aren't up on your biblical conversions when it comes to what an ephah is. Except for maybe Ian. He likes Bible trivia. (laughs) What she's doing is essentially carrying home 30 to 40 pounds of grain. Like, this is like a large bag of dog food that she's like throwing over her shoulder after just gleaning for a day? Well, this leads to the third section of our story, a rising hope that we see in verses 17 through 23. You can imagine Naomi's surprise when she sees Ruth walking back home and sees her carrying this giant bag of grain after just one day's work. And she's like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this is the opposite of her own experience. Right? Naomi left full, left Bethlehem full, and she came back empty. Ruth goes out one day empty and comes back full. So she's like, where did you go work today? Where did you glean? Whose field were you in? Because I, I, this is some amazing provision that you have going on. And so Ruth tells her, look at verse 20. Sorry, verse 19. She says, who, who did this for you? So she tells her, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And then Ruth, I mean, Naomi says to her, to her daughter-in-law, verse 20, the beginning of it, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That word kindness, hesed, steadfast love, loving kindness. Naomi's recognizing something here, and she's giving praise and thankfulness to Boaz, but she's also giving praise and thankfulness to God, because what God's doing through Boaz is showing and lavishing loving kindness on her. He has not forgotten them in their distress. Now here's a woman who has struggled with God's providence in her life. A woman who lost her husband, lost her two sons, partly because of disobedience, partly just through God's providence in her life, but she struggled with God's providence in her life. But in this moment, what Naomi is seeing is the character and nature of God through providence. He still is active in their life. He's still present. He's still involved. He still cares, even about me. And notice it's through a recent convert, through, from another people group that reminds her of that. It's not like Ruth has gone to Bible college or seminary or read a lot of theology books to know all about God's providence and his care for his people, but he reminds Naomi of it. And that may be an encouragement to you and to me. It doesn't matter how much you know. If you know Jesus, you know enough. You can encourage one another to remember the good news of who God is and who he has shown, us, shown himself to be in and through Christ. But that's not the end of the story. It gets even better. Naomi also said to her, verse 20, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now what in the world is she talking about there? Well, it's this concept called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. What it is is a concept that combined two parts of the law. That if a brother died and didn't have any heirs, he didn't have any children, then another brother or a close relative would do two things. He would buy back the property that was his brother's to keep it in the family and he would marry his widow. 
He would marry his widow, and any children that they had would be considered heirs of the deceased brother. Now, the reason for this was to continue the family line. It was to continue the family name. He's a redeemer, whoever this redeemer is, because he essentially buys back the family, keeping them out of slavery, keeping them out of destitution. And it's a concept that we're going to return to more next week because he blows it up in chapter 3. So, come back for part 3 next Sunday. But at this point in the story, I don't think Ruth has any idea what that means. Like, she's new to all this. And it doesn't seem that Boaz knows that he's connected in this way. He's just showed loving kindness to a stranger. So then in verses 21 and 22, Naomi's like, oh my goodness. Like, you got all this stuff, and it's from Boaz, and he's one of our redeemers. You have to stay working in his field. Like, don't go anywhere else. You have to stay there. Keep doing what he said to do. Stay close to his men and women that are working along with him so you can continue to be provided for. Stay there. I mean, what's Naomi up to? Right? She's like, all right. I see what's going on here. Maybe we can do a little matchmaker here. She's trying to maybe connect the two of them together because she's thinking maybe something will happen here. Is she tempted once again to take things into her own hands? She's seen God's providence, but now she's like, okay, okay, God, I see what you're doing here. Let me just go ahead and do this for you. We don't really know how mixed her motives might be, but what we see in Naomi is a renewed and rising hope. She sees that the Lord is at work, and that's what matters most. And so this chapter ends with this concluding statement, this kind of statement of anticipation. It says, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So some time passes here. And she lived with her mother-in-law. What's clear from this story is that the presence and providence of God is real to the characters of this story, even though they don't know exactly what he's up to. The presence and providence of God is real, even though they don't know exactly what he's up to. And man, that's such an important truth for us to grab a hold of. Such an important truth for us to rest in as well. See, you may know and believe that God is sovereign. You may know and believe that God is providential in your life, but it can be difficult to know exactly how that's going to work out in your life. And so what do we do with that? Well, the world has a narrative for you. The world says life is a circle, right? Life, death, life, death. We celebrate it with Elton John. We sing a circle of life. Every Disney movie tells the same narrative. It's happy, sad, happy. Happy, sad, happy. But as one author writes, this kind of groundless optimism, this groundless happiness always ends in cynicism and despair because at the end of the day, what's the point? The circle of life will crush you. But the story of Ruth gives you hope because it shows you that you are not trapped in some sick cycle of despair. It shows you there's a journey towards hope. See, last week we saw that death gives way to life, but it's more than that. Death gives way to resurrection, to something better. And I think we've probably all heard the line before, you know what, God won't give you more than you can handle. That is a lie. God in his kind and loving providence often gives you more than you can handle because it leads you to desperation. But it isn't desperation that has to end in despair. It's an opportunity to be dependent on the Lord. It's an opportunity for hope, for God to show up and do what only he can do. 
The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. After going through great difficulty, he says this to encourage you. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. See, each of us walks through small deaths in our life. We experience difficulty. We experience loss, disappointment. Things don't go the way that we would hope that they would go. Relationships don't work out the way that we would hope. There's just general brokenness in our lives. We all go through these small deaths in our life all along the way. But listen to me, God is always at work to bring about resurrection. He's always at work to bring about resurrection. But it comes about when we come to the end of ourselves. When we recognize that we are not in control that we are not God. I mean, that's how we got into the predicaments we're in in the first place. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve when they said, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. They sought to take control, to take the place of God in their life, and we know how that went. But you and I continue to struggle with the same thing, wanting to be in control, wanting to be the masters of our own lives. But it's often through these times of these small deaths in our life that we recognize that that's not the case we aren't actually God. And that's the point. See, God's kind and loving providence is always working towards something in your life. Listen to me, always working something towards something in your life that would not come about unless you walk that path of life, death, and resurrection. I've seen this over and over again in my own life. When Amy and I were uh, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, we're, we're hoping to start a family and in the midst of that, it was a difficult time because we continued to try to get pregnant and it, and it wasn't happening. And so we wrestled with infertility for a period of time and, and had doctors tell us, hey, you've got a 1% chance of getting pregnant on your own. And there's some other options available to us, but we just ethically didn't feel like they were honoring to the Lord. And so we we're like, all right, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. And in the midst of that, we were wrestling with different things going on in our life. When it came to ministry, I was already serving in a church and through that, we just said, maybe the Lord wants us to move to Louisville, Kentucky, so we can finish seminary, kind of figure out if we're supposed to plant a church or not. We had thought about it, but weren't really sure if we wanted to do that, if that's what God was calling us to do. And so we packed all of our stuff up, and we moved to Louisville. The week after we got there, found out Amy was pregnant with our son, Owen. And it was through a difficult season, but we look back on that, and we got involved in a church in Kentucky that was teaching the gospel and helping us to understand grace in a way that we hadn't heard before, at the same time talking about planting churches and multiplying, and through that, God showed us and told us, no, you need to go back to Northern Virginia, and you need to go plant a church. And here we are today, sitting in a cafeteria in Fairfax, Virginia, the town of Providence. Now listen, I don't think, knowing myself, we ever would have moved to Kentucky if we already had kids. I'm practical and pragmatic. That doesn't make any sense. But through loss, through difficulty, through a small death in our life, God sent us there. And it was through that time and through that trial that God did something in our life to bring us back to the place to be here today. I don't think we'd be here today. Right now, in this room together, this church wouldn't exist if we hadn't gone through some difficulty like that. My guess is all of us have stories like that in our life. We see this in the story of Ruth. 
Stories like Ruth are helpful to us because they allow us this bird's eye view of the work and hand of God. We can read a story like this and say, oh, I see God's at work. And so when we look at our own lives, we can read a story like this and be like, God, it must be at work in my life too. Because this is who God is. One 17th century pastor put it this way, the providences of God are like Hebrew words. They can only be read backwards. Right? I mean, I could look at the circumstances of my life now, and I can look backwards. I can read from right to left instead of left to right, and I can look and say, oh, I see God's kind providence. I see his loving providence in my life. But when I was in the midst of that, I don't see it at all. And I said to him, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're doing it in this way. But you know what? That's okay. Because having hope isn't about figuring out what God's doing. Having hope isn't about figuring out what he's doing. It's trusting in the God who is full of loving kindness, even when you don't know what he's doing. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. Life is often confusing at different points. And we can find ourselves kind of teetering back and forth between fear and faith. Kind of that place where you're kind of on that fence and you feel like, man, in one moment I'm, I'm really fearful. I, I experienced this even this last week in my own life, thinking about different things going on in my life, going on in the life of our church and ministry and be like, man, I'm over here and I'm feeling fearful. And then, no, God, I want to trust you. And so I'm over here and I'm in this place of faith. And you know what? It's sometimes moment by moment. We're back and forth, teetering, fear, faith, fear, faith. Do you ever feel like that? Sometimes in the midst of our confusion and the challenges and difficulties of this life, we can forget not only God's providence, but we can forget God's most significant display of his chesed towards us. His love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his redemptive work that he has given to us in and through Christ. See, like Ruth, we all have real and ongoing needs, but our deepest need, like Ruth, is also met in the loving kindness of a redeemer, but not just a redeemer, but in the redeemer. See, a redeemer, the biblical idea of a redeemer does loving kindness because a redeemer doesn't do this, doesn't love from a distance. A redeemer enters in and takes on the burden of another. And Jesus has done that for you. Jesus has walked through suffering and difficulty. He has walked the path of life, death, and resurrection. He has walked that path before you. He's taken on your brokenness. He knows what it's like to live in the midst of a broken world. And God's ultimate display of kind providence is in Christ coming to rescue you, taking on all of your sin and all of your shame, giving you more than you deserve, lavishing grace upon grace upon grace in your life. And so what that means for you now, if you've trusted in Christ, is that you can continue to trust him. Now, you can trust him forever. He is your sure refuge, just like he was for Ruth. His mercies are new every morning. But listen, faith in Christ is not just some mental assent to a proposition. It's not a, not a mental assent to a truth. It's about immersing yourself, entering into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus experiencing him in that way so that he might transform you to be more like him. So let me ask you, have you truly trusted in Christ? Are you just kind of hanging out on the sides right now, walking around the edge of the pool, not ready to jump in, but man, do you hear God's voice calling you? Jump in the water, experience Christ, immerse yourself in his loving kindness. 
you've trusted Christ in the past, are you trusting him right now in the midst of whatever might be going on? See, what the story of Ruth shows us is that God's providence, God's providence in your life leads you to experience his loving kindness in a way that you wouldn't if things were different. God's providence leads you to experience his loving kindness in your life in a way that wouldn't be possible if things were different. It's a kind and loving providence because in it, if you're paying attention, God is offering you more and more and more of himself. Where might God be doing that in your life right now? Where might God be working to lead you to experience more of his loving kindness through his providence in your life right now? One pastor famously tweeted a few years ago, he said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Like Ruth, we need to see our story embedded in the larger story. Her story reminds us that nothing just happens and that we don't always know everything that is happening. But what we can know is that God is full of loving kindness and he is at work, always at work. You are not here in this time in 2019. You are not here in this place. You don't live where you live, work where you work, go to school where you go to school. You're not even a part of this church by accident. You're not in any circumstance in your life right now by accident. You're where you're at and going through what you're going through because God is at work. Because he loves you, he wants to do a transforming work in you, a resurrecting work in you and through you. And that's whether you don't yet know Christ or you've known Jesus for a long time. It's his kind and loving providence that he is guiding your story towards resurrection. He's guiding your story towards new life. And sometimes it's painful, but it is always for your good and always for his glory. So come to him now. Come to the one who called everything into existence by the power of his word. Come to the one who holds all things together. Come to the one who goes with you and before you. Come to the one who knows when you lie down and when you rise up. Come to the one who says to you, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to him. He is good and he is faithful. Amen. We're going to come forward now and take communion together, something we do every single week because we need to be reminded of God's loving kindness towards us. Communion is a time, a meal that reminds you of it. It refreshes you in his steadfast love for you. As you eat the bread, a picture of Jesus's body broken for you and drink the cup, a picture of Jesus's blood shed for you. May your soul be refreshed this morning. May it be refreshed in the ways of the loving kindness of God towards you in Christ. As you eat this meal this morning, may God remind you that he redeems and restores the mess of your sin and sadness and one day will make all things new. And I just encourage you this morning, take some time during communion to give thanks for that. Take some time this morning to reflect, to respond to his mercy, to respond to his grace, to respond to his kind and loving providence in your life. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, the way we'd invite you to respond to that is not to come forward to take communion, but just to hang in your seat and take Christ today. Is God calling you to himself right now? Have you been ignoring that calling? Place your faith in Jesus today for who he is and what he's done. And then let somebody around you know that 
so we can help you understand what it now looks like to know Christ and follow him in every moment and every day of your life. For those of you that will come forward, there's tables at the front and tables at the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd help us. I pray, God, that you'd help us to trust you. We don't always know what you're up to in our life. We don't always know what you're up to in our world, but help us to know and trust that you are a God that's full of steadfast love and loving kindness towards us, mercy and grace. God, I pray that you would help us to rest in that reality and to remind one another of it when we're struggling to believe it to be true. God, we thank you for being a God who cares about the details of our life. You are high and lifted up. You're above everything in every way, God, yet you care about us on an individual basis. You know how many hairs are on our head. You know when a bird falls in the forest. You know what's going on. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you in the midst of that. And God, help us to continually look to the cross of Christ and the empty tomb to see a display of your kind and loving providence towards us by sending Christ to rescue us. God, we can't wait for the day when Jesus will come again and make all things new. But until that day, give us hope and strength to endure and persevere with joy and hope until that day comes. We praise the name of Christ this morning and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.